Church.us. The Light 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener, we're so glad that you can join with us for the next hour. What we do is we take people's questions concerning God's word as they're studying it. Maybe they're challenged by a section of scripture and they want some help or there's a personal issue they're facing in their life or ministry or church and they would like biblical counsel. Well, if we can help by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally, 525-1859. Of course, uh, WAGP at WAGP.net broadcasts through the Internet around the world. And for those listening in other parts of the country, our toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can just simply dictate your question and remain anonymous, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Let's get started, Rick. Indeed, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning to you, too. And first of all, I just want to thank Pastor Brogy. I have grown more as a Christian since I started listening to your radio program. And uh, I have the app, Search and Scripture app, and I'm studying at Bibliology right now. So I plan on going through the seminary thing uh, little by little. And I'm just really, really a stronger person. Uh, thank you for your ministry. Well, um, thanks for that encouragement. I appreciate your heart to want to study and know God's Word. Absolutely. Um, I have a question. Uh, recently, I had somebody totally unfriend me with Facebook. Uh, uh, they don't want to be my friend anymore because I had a problem with uh, uh, the husband, the language. Uh, every couple of words the last time we were around him, me and my husband, Every other word was F. Uh, it's an it's a ugly thing. I don't want to have to listen to it. I haven't said anything up until recently. And they wanted us to go over to their house to eat with them. And I asked her as a friend, could she maybe mention to her husband to, uh, you know, tone, the, tone down the language a little bit. She was very offended and said that I was very judgmental. I had no right. And that even though she's an atheist, she puts up with me and don't require me to don't ask of me uh, to be anything other than who I am. Um, anyway, she's done with me, so I just, I just want to know how you feel about that when people, uh, uh, what should a Christian say when, when, when foul language is involved? Um, you know, do we speak up? Do we, 
uh, ignore it. I don't feel like I should ignore it, but what do you what do you say, Pastor Berge? Well, it is a great question, and let me see if I can respond. Um, Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so when you hear a man, you know, repeatedly use profanity, uh, that's what's in his heart. And he's, um, you know, a person who needs the Lord, obviously, more than anything else. Uh, He needs Christ as his personal Savior, because when any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, and the old things have passed away, and all things have become new. That's not to say that a Christian couldn't swear, that a Christian couldn't even use a curse word. But as you grow in Christ, God begins to change your language as he changes your life. And as your mind is renewed and you're conformed to the image of Christ and where every thought is brought more and more captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, obviously, uh, there are some things that, that we as parents need to do, especially if there are children involved that are critical to protect them. So would I want my children or my grandchildren, you know, around uh, a setting like that where a man is using, you know, just nonstop profanity? Absolutely not. Um, God says I'll have a man, a person, a, a woman to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. And so, um, you know, you don't want to certainly rob a child of their innocence by exposing them to vulgarity. Uh, they're going to hear it at some point in their life, but while they're in the formation stage of life and their hearts being shaped, uh, you want to protect them as much as you can from evil. You want to do everything first to win them to Christ and then begin to grow them and nurture them. But honestly, uh, if, uh, I didn't hang around with people over the years who, uh, just because they use vulgarity, I would not have won a large number of people to the Lord. Uh, sometimes I put up with the language, um, not around my kids. And if it's around the kids it's say, Hey, you know, Joe, I, I, I know you probably don't think about this, but my kids are coming here and I don't want them to hear, you know, the F word or whatever it is. And so please, uh, you know, and if he's offended by that, then he's offended by it. And, but that's okay. But I don't want to, uh, you know, miss the opportunity to build a bridge into their life to share the gospel of Christ. Now, obviously, there can come a point where you feel like, hey, um, I'm investing a lot of time in this family or in this couple. And at this point, there is no response. There's no openness. There's no hunger. There's no willingness to even dialogue over the things of God. And at that point, you know, you may want to uh, you know, restrict your friendship to some degree. I'm not saying necessarily cut it off, but I look at the world at large. And if uh, 25 families visit my church this Sunday and and there are five that seem exceptionally open to wanting to find out about the Lord Jesus and one, well, why do you come? Well, my mother drugged me, but I wish I hadn't. I hate everything about it. You know, I will try to reach out to them. And try to build a bridge into his life. But if he's uninterested, I'm not going to push it when God's given me five people who are open and hungry and searching. So, you know, you can waste years and hundreds of hours in relationship with people whose hearts are closed. And the best thing to do at that point is to pray for them. And uh, many listening have family members just like the person you described and uh, they pray for them. They fast for them. Uh, they, they show them the love of Christ. Think of this person if that person using this vulgarity were your brother. 
you probably wouldn't give up on him. Uh, you would you would stick with him, but there would still be some parameters in the relationship, and you have to seek God for wisdom as to how you're going to, um, you know, exercise uh, your being around that person in light of who they are. Uh, Christ obviously was a friend of sinners. We need to be as well. And so it's not an easy situation. I'm not telling you that what you did was wrong, but you asked me how I would handle it. And again, there's a lot of people that I never would have had the opportunity to meet with and to share Christ with if their language were a showstopper. Uh, so I, I had to kind of look past that, look for that open door. And then when they find Christ, it, just things begin to change. I really appreciate that question in her heart because I know she wants to please the Lord. Let's go to the next caller, the next question that's been dictated because we've got a bunch. We do have another live caller standing by. Let's go there now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, hi, Pastor Brogy. Um, I wanted to know, did Moses take his family with him to the promised land? And where would I find that in the Bible? Yeah, um, he uh, he did. He did go into the promised land with his family. Now, there was a period of time when uh, he was separated from his family. And the, the, the book that you want to read is the book of Exodus, which is, of course, think of exit, Exodus. And uh, that's the title anyway in our English Bibles. It's a different title in the Hebrew Bible is Shamoth. Um, but uh, the book of Exodus uh Uh, covers about a year after the time uh, they leave Egypt. And um, in terms of uh, the fine details, of course, it covers they're in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. But there was some time when his family was uh, with his father-in-law, Jethro. And uh, some people think that Moses got a divorce and remarried. And that's crazy. That's that's not the case. Um, It is true that in the Bible, you're going to discover that sometimes people have more than one name. For instance, um, I just had a friend here last week, and his name is Alexander. Um, He's from Russia, but he's also called Sasha, uh, because that's the nickname uh, for Alexander, or Richard might be Dick, or, you know, Robert might be Bob. And so you're going to find a couple of different names that are used to describe Moses's wife, just like there's a couple of different names used to describe uh, Jethro, the father-in-law. So this would be a good exercise for you. Um, You could certainly focus starting on the 18th chapter of Exodus, but what would be a good thing to do, uh, you sound rather young, would be to take your Bible and just start reading in Exodus 1 and read all the way through the whole book of Exodus. And if you read about three chapters a day, uh, you'll get through it in a short period of time because it's not really that long a book, but it's a great book and you're going to learn so much of how God works as you read through those 40 chapters of Exodus. Uh, But yes, he took his family into the promised land. So I can tell you the verse and everything, but I want you to find it because I want you to read the book of Exodus. I have it right in front of me, the verse that describes it, but I want you to read it. And after you've read through Exodus, if you can't find it, then you call me back up and we'll discuss it. All right. Great question. We've got a live caller waiting. Let's go there. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, My question actually is, there's a couple of parts to it. 
I belong to a ladies' golf league, and they have a charity thing every every spring, and they sell raffle tickets. Well, I don't usually sell the raffle tickets because I don't. I, I kind of think no matter how you cut it, a raffle ticket is is gambling. However, when we um, play golf, we also give like five dollars, and then whoever has the best score or whatever, they have prizes. Would that be gambling also? And then the next part of it is, if someone were to win the lottery and want to donate money to the church, how would the church feel about accepting money from such funds? Well, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, uh, it's it's an issue that's come up more than once uh, with pastors across the country where their church members have played the lottery. Uh, It's uh, certainly uh, money in, in one sense that's dirty money. Uh, but so is all money, ultimately. Uh, Jesus described uh, money as unrighteous mammon. But if I were a pastor of the church and someone came and they said, Pastor, I just want a million dollars and I want to I tithe, you know, 10% to the work of the Lord. I would say to him, well, look, uh, you've put me in a precarious situation. And for me to receive your 10%, I need to know from you what you think about playing the lottery, because I do not want to take your $100,000 and therefore encourage my members to do something that I know is not right and pleasing to the Lord, because it is a form of covetousness. And it's really sad because you see certain paydays here in our county. And, you know, I, I was in a gas station not that long ago, and this lady was buying like 50 lottery tickets. And it was really kind of sad because, you know, she went out and she got into a broken down old car and the kids didn't look very well dressed. And and it was just sad because you could see that um, this system and it often feeds on the poor, not exclusively, but often does. And they put their hope in winning the lottery and and they they gamble. Uh, They are guilty of the sin of covetousness. So I would only receive it if the person, A, was willing to publicly say, look, what I did was wrong. Sin is sin. And uh, God has uh, forgiven me of it. And uh, and maybe because it is dirty money, I need to give all $1 million to the church. (laughs) In either case... uh, you know, I, I suppose, um, you know, if, uh, you know, people say, look, whoever wins the golf game today, uh, um, you know, they uh, they don't have to buy lunch or I, I don't know. You know, there's there's some things that are playful and fun that I wouldn't necessarily consider gambling. Now, I, I can't say that I've, you know, said, OK, everybody knock in five bucks and whoever wins the game, you know. Uh, will uh, take take the pot. I, I, I suppose you could call that gambling, but I don't really think so uh, in the strictest form. Do I like the idea of selling raffle tickets? No. Um, is it uh, gambling? Well, uh, you know, there, there's a fine line there. There's not a, a lot of risk involved if it's a, you know, a 50-cent raffle ticket and the Boy Scouts come and say, hey, would you give... Uh, 50 cents or a dollar to buy a raffle ticket to help our Boy Scout unit. And, and by the way, whoever wins is going to get, you know, a brand new ax from our scout troop. Uh, You know, I don't think that's really gambling. Uh, But when people are, uh, you know, going to these raffles where you put in 50 and a hundred dollars and, you know, there's some serious money there. Uh, it then I think we've crossed the line. I don't think it's gambling when you put a 52 cent stamp on, um, you know, a publisher's clearinghouse thing that comes in the mail. I don't even know if they mail them anymore. Uh, it's probably all done on the computer. 
I don't think that's necessarily gambling because there's uh, no real serious investment of funds that's involved. Now, I I recognize that's relative. And so we have, uh, you know, um, the Moody Bible Institute that has recently come out in the last year and they said gambling in moderation, smoking in moderation and using alcohol in moderation is permissible. And unfortunately, I think it was one of their board members. I can't say this dogmatically, but one of their board members is Jerry Jenkins, and he's guilty of gambling. And so he lost $8,000 in Las Vegas, and he said, well, that was just chump chains. Well, you know, $8,000 of God's money is not chump change, not to mention he's supporting an industry that has destroyed and ruined families across the nation. And so uh, I I think that there's a real evil there involved and it's wrong to promote that kind of lifestyle and that kind of, you know, action. And, uh, you know, he was involved with Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series. And Tim LaHaye is, you know, like as straight as an arrow and is against alcohol and smoking and gambling. But he had co-authored this series and they made, you know, tens of millions of dollars. I know Tim LaHaye, for instance, gave $42 million of what he earned to Liberty University uh, to help build, a, you know, an educational center up there at the school. Uh, so he was very invested in the kingdom. And, and sometimes when you get these board members who give a lot of money to an institution, sometimes they can, with that money, change the policies in the institution, maybe to make themselves feel good. So there is a line, um, and we need to be, you know, wise and discerning in terms of that. And we want our testimony to be above reproach. Uh, I think you need to be careful, you know, if you choose not to participate, say, in a raffle, um, that that is, you know, communicated in a way that you don't miss the opportunity to share the gospel with those people because, you know, they're just blinded to some things. But again, I I think you could justify maybe some raffles. You know, the Boy Scouts come by and, you know, we used to sell raffle tickets when I was a Boy Scout and I was 12 years old. We went door to door and I think we asked 50 cents a ticket and there was a prize that they gave. You know, it it certainly was not representative of the amount of money we collected, but there was a prize. But people were trying to help a quote unquote good cause. And I don't think there was anything wrong or evil with that. But there is a line, and certainly when churches engage in that kind of thing, they, I think, have lost their above-reproach testimony, not to mention they're raising funds in a way that is not really biblical. When you go to the world to bring money into the church, then Scripture has been violated. So when churches start having these bazaars and pancake sales and you know, all these other crazy things they do, people bring their junk and they, you know, they sell all the stuff on the church lawn one Saturday. That's not the way God wants the work of the kingdom supported. He asks his people to set aside a tenth of the increase that they have earned. And as he leads them, because giving is not just an issue of percentages and offering it on occasion as well as God leads, bring your tithe and offering, uh, which is above the, the 10%. Um, so, uh, God has a different way of raising money in the church. And I think that's where our key focus needs to be. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. 
A listener in Waco, Texas, wants to know if you know anything about independent Baptists. They've recently moved to a new city and are searching for a solid church. There's an independent Baptist church they're going to attend, uh, la- well, they actually attended last Sunday. Their doctrinal statement is very sound and conservative, but they have an entire section devoted to defending the use of only the King James Version of the Bible. They even go as far as to say if it's the only infallible, inerrant version preserved for our generation. And they include uh, the NASB, ESV, NIV, etc. are not trustworthy or faithful to the Textus Receptus. Well, the uh, the Independent Baptist movement um, is, you know, similar doctrinally, say, to even Southern Baptists. The, the difference is, is the way they view the connectiveness. Uh, both would argue for the autonomy of the local church. However, Southern Baptists would pool funds, you know, through things like the cooperative program and, you know, Lottie Moon, the missions offering and so forth to cooperate further to um, bring the gospel to the rest of the world. And that's a biblical principle. While churches are independent or autonomous, they are to be interdependent with other Bible-believing churches to further the cause of Christ. And so you see cooperation within the New Testament. All you have to do is read the missionary journeys of Paul, and you see churches helping churches to further the cause of Christ and meet specific needs that they had. The independent Baptist movement... Um, you know, they would not have that same connectiveness, say, as a denomination like the SBC. But doctrinally, in terms of, you know, all the basics of the faith, they're going to be in total agreement, post-conversion baptism, eternal security, the priesthood of the believers, sola scriptura, you know, all the essentials that are tests of orthodoxy, they're going to be straight as an arrow. One of the things, however, that has distinguished independent Baptists has been the what we often refer to as the King James only movement. There have been some independent Baptist churches that have moved from that mentality. Uh, we just had someone here uh, email us to the Bible line a few weeks ago, a, a, a woman and her late 60s, and she's attending an independent Baptist church up in Maine, and she said, you know, I bring my little granddaughter to church, and she doesn't really understand what's going on because the translation is so difficult, and, you know, uh, it's sad because the mindset that the King James Version is the only trustworthy uh, translation of the Bible is just not true, and I deal certainly with this issue in great depth. And and if this caller from Waco wants to study this, I've taught a course on bibliology in section six of that course. There's several hundred pages to it uh, in terms of note-taking outlines, but section six deals with the whole subject of Bible translations in the English tongue. And we have kind of a unique problem in this country. When I go to other countries of the world, they're fortunate many times just to have one translation of the Bible in their native tongue. Uh, Actually, there are over 200 English translations, most of which you've never heard, but the major ones we're familiar with, the RSV, the ESV, the NIV, um, the NAS, the um, uh, King James, the New King James. In fact, the independent Baptist movement is so splintered sometimes that if someone adopts the new King James version of the Bible, they'll consider them to be liberal. 
Um, so they, they split hairs over issues that are just kind of silly sometimes and really are issues that express more ignorance than they do a, a careful study of how God gave us his word and translated it. And so they'll say, well, you know, uh, the, the, the blood has been taken out of the new American standard. That's silly. That's just ridiculous. And I cover that in the study that we have. There are, granted, a handful of places in the Bible where we have what I might call 102% of the Bible. Uh, and here was the challenge. When, when manuscripts were copied, they would copy them from end to end on the paper. Uh, because paper was so expensive and so valuable. And uh, there was virtually no spaces between words. It was just solid letters. And when you read it, your mind had to supply the spaces between words. Now, in some words in Greek, uh, the ending of one word could be the start of another and could change the meaning. And so if you didn't read real carefully, you could come up with, oh, a misreading of the text. The other challenge is that sometimes people would have a personal copy of Scripture, and they would write out in the personal copy as they, you know, they wanted a page, say, of the Gospel of Matthew or a page out of John's first letter. And they didn't obviously have the Bible like we have it post-printing press. And so you got a personal copy by going and copying it. And sometimes in, in doing that, uh, a person would write their own individual note in, in the text. Just like if I opened your Bible, I would probably find notes out in the margin or words written over, the, over a verse. Or uh, Those are personal study notes for your own edification. And, and people did that even in, in, in the early centuries. And sometimes if you included a note in your text uh, on, and another person copied your text, they would copy your note. And then there would be a whole what we would call family of manuscripts that would come from that. And so the challenge sometimes is to ask, well, what's the original 100%? And so <laughs> there's a handful of places where the King James reads differently uh, than, say, the New American Standard. And they affect absolutely nothing doctrinally, nothing in terms of how to live a holy or godly life, absolutely nothing. Um, but there are some debates, and sometimes Christians want to divide over these issues, and it's kind of sad. Uh, I, I will admit that there are some translations that are less than faithful to the original. So I acknowledge that. So like when the NIV came out, the NIV 84 um, you know, it's a reasonably good translation. It was not written with the same aim and objective that, say, the English Standard Version or the New American Standard or the King James or the New King James was written, where they put literalness over readability and they sought to do a word-for-word -word translation. The NIV did a lot of thought-for-thought, -thought, and so you ended up paraphrasing and now when you go to buy an NIV Bible, you're buying the uh, 2010 version that came out in paper in 2011. And it's not like the NIV 84. Uh, it was actually a blend between the NIV 84 and the TNIV, which was kind of a, a gender sensitive Bible that altered a number of verses to, so that they were gender sensitive and not offensive to people. Look, God uses masculine pronouns sometimes to express himself. 
And if that's what he writes, then we don't want to rob the masculinity of God from the Bible. But they did. And in the NIV 2010, it was kind of a cross between those two translations. And in so doing that, when you take a singular pronoun he and you change it to they so that you don't offend people, you change the meaning of the verse. And I, again, cover that in section six of the course on bibliology. And if someone's interested in studying that, you can call search the scriptures. And and one of the first callers mentioned they're actually taking that course. We have a thing called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's 33 hours of study. It's equivalent to a, a Bible certificate. And it's taught on a master's level. Um, and it's very in-depth. And some people are taking it for credit and they write the papers and everything else. I just read a 25-page paper on Sunday night that someone had written on the uh, course on eschatology uh, that we offer, uh, which is dealing with the doctrine of end times. So uh, again, sometimes you get move to a town and you don't have a lot of choice. And you may move to a town where the only church is an independent Baptist church. And they're Bible-believing Christians and they love the Lord. And if that's your only option and you need to be a part of a Bible-believing church somewhere, you can't say, well, you know, I just don't buy into this King James only deal. And, you know, and I guess I know you, you need to be a part of a local assembly. Not to be is disobedience. And we can rationalize and say, well, they're this or that. No, we are to be a part of a born-again Bible-believing assembly. And if there's not one in your town, then you may have to travel to another town or God may lead you and some other like-minded Christians to help plan a new church. And granted, there's a lot of church planning that goes on today by people who are unqualified. They just decide, well, we're going to plan a church. And it's really kind of sad and silly. And we've got all these church plants going up all across the country that are not good and not healthy because they're not led by qualified leadership. Um, and, and very often all they do is they go into a town and they take existing Christians out of a church and they suck God's people who are in already Bible believing churches. Now, if a guy wants to go into a town and plant a church and he starts winning people to Jesus who'd never heard the gospel and never received Christ as their savior, that's a different story, but that's not the way most church plants are taking place in the country. They're just sucking good Christian people who are in healthy churches out to do their own thing. And that's kind of sad anyway, but I appreciate that question. And I hope my answer helps. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Okay. We had a listener call in who dictated their question. They'd like to know if uh, you've ever heard as some believe that Cain was not Adam's son, but a product of Eve and the serpent, thus explaining the animosity between Cain and Abel. The scholar says she's heard this from two different people and would like to know how they come up with this. Yeah, it's um, it was a heresy that was introduced largely uh, or at least popularized in this country in the 1960s by a man who's now dead. But God's word is clear. You know, uh, Eve didn't have some kind of sexual relationship with the serpent and uh, produce Cain. Uh, God, God makes it very clear. Now, the man in in the nearest antecedent goes back to Adam had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord listen if God's involved in it God certainly wouldn't be involved in some kind of evil relationship between a demon and um, and a woman 
so, you know, just the thought that God gives his endorsement to it uh, here in his word is important. And again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And Cain is described as indeed his brother. So when God then gives the genealogy of the descendants of Adam, you know, uh, it's very clear. So it's, it's absolute heresy to say that Cain is the offspring of a relationship that Eve had. And again, you, you've got these groups that are, are, are cults. Now, I don't know how else to describe them. Uh, they are cults. And people sometimes will, you know, are looking for uh, answers to life. And the cult is the very first people to reach them. And so they buy into some of this stuff. Other people buy into error because of the fact that they've heard the truth and they've rejected the truth. And God warns about such behavior. When we reject the truth, we can easily believe a lie. And that's very often what happens to people. They, they know what God says, um, but they reject what God says and they end up believing a lie. So the whole idea that Cain was a descendant of the serpent through Eve is just pure heresy. And it goes against the clear teaching of scripture. And, um, and people get deceived. And we need to, to recognize how evil the evil one is and some of the deception that he will bring upon people in this world. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Darlene in Beaufort would like to know, was the Holocaust predicted in the Bible? She's been reading the Old Testament quite a bit and knows that God predicted a lot of punishment for the Jews who went away from him uh, into the world's way. So she's wondering if in the Bible there was a reference that could account for the Holocaust. Um, no, there's not. Uh, it, it is not predicted in the Bible. Now, there are certainly judgments of God that are prophesied that come upon God's people. For instance, Jeremiah the prophet speaks of the fact that God is going to use the Babylonian people and to carry them away in judgment. And so God gives specific uh, predictions, but the Holocaust as such is not prophesied in the Bible any more than the Twin Towers following on 9-11 were prophesied in the Bible. Sometimes people will will come up with some of these things, um, you know, and and even try to find a Bible verse to substantiate it. But then they're not reading out what God has plainly said. They're reading into the text of Scripture. All right. Very good. From Beaufort, we have another question. Uh, They dictated theirs. Why do you suppose Christ would select so many fishermen to be his disciples? That's a good question. Um you know, at least four of the disciples were, were fishermen. We know that from the calling of the fishermen, uh, as it's recorded in uh, John's gospel in the opening chapters of John. Uh, let me just turn there for a second. Uh, we find uh, Jesus calling um, initially to uh, to come and coming to find out and see what he's all about. And so you got Andrew and, and James and Peter and John and and uh, they're clearly fishermen. They're, they're leaving their nets to come follow Christ. Some would say there's as many as seven who are fishermen. Not all. We know not all 12 are fishermen. Uh, certainly Matthew was a tax collector. But uh, there's seven who go fishing there on the beach in John chapter uh, 21. 
And so um, clearly we have at least, you know, at least four, maybe as many as seven. But why, why fishermen? Well, uh, I think it's a good choice. Number one, if you know anything about fishermen, even as it's illustrated in the Gospels, these guys are hard workers. And if you want someone in the ministry that's going to be productive, they have to have a work ethic. If you're looking to hire a pastor or a staff member or a youth leader for your church, one of the things you want to look and ask about is what their work ethic is like. Um, There are unfortunately some people who go into the ministry because of the nature of the work that we do who abuse the ministry and they see it as a, a cushy kind of job. Um, the pastor of any church is basically in one sense, self-employed. He's in fact, by the government, uh, he can be considered as such self-employed. And so, um, he has to have personal discipline and he has to be a person of integrity because much of what a pastor does is unseen. Uh, you don't see a pastor prepare a sermon. Now you may see the fact that he didn't prepare a sermon. Uh, that he was very sloppy in his exegesis and his handling of the text. And the people look up and they say, feed me, pastor. And they leave hungry for the simple reason the pastor has not really prepared. Uh, sometimes he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And he's, he's working hard, but he's working hard doing the wrong things. He's living up to expectations that people have and not to the expectations that God puts upon him. But fishermen were certainly hard workers. And uh, you need people with a strong work ethic who go into the ministry. Uh, And not only are they hard workers, they know how to work with others, especially the way fishing was done in the early centuries. And in many ways, the way it's still done. You know, we live in a section of the country where we see shrimpers and uh, there's a team effort out on those boats and they work together and they know how to work with others. And certainly if you're like me, when I fish, it demands a certain degree of faith because uh, my hook goes out there, and uh, but it's going out with an expectation that maybe I'm going to pull something up. And of course, um, so God, God uses some of the material that's there as a starting place, as in a launching pad. Now, a work ethic all by itself, if it's not energized by the Spirit of God, means nothing. If someone's not filled with the Spirit, his ability to work with others means nothing. And uh, just having faith that you can pull up a fish is not the same as having faith that you can win someone to Jesus. So there are certain things that we may bring into the kingdom at our conversion that God can use as a springboard. But unless those uh, gifts and abilities and um, things that we uh, bring to the Lord are transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then they mean very, very little for the kingdom of God. Um, and God, I might say, also often uses um, a means that the world would not expect. You know, when the men stood up there on the day of Pentecost, they said, you know, how is it that these guys speak with such power being uneducated? And they recognized that they had been with Christ. And so sometimes God, so that no one can get any credit for it, will pull off things through people that you wouldn't expect. That's not to say that, say, God is down on education, because one of the most uh, uh, educated persons in all the Bible is probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Uh, But even he, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, "For, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many uh, mighty, not many noble, 
Uh, he didn't say not any mighty, not any noble, but not many. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the things of the world, uh, the, the weak things of the world, to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. All right. Another listener just called. They'd like to know what you think of uh, the author Lee Strobel and his books. Uh, Lee's a good guy. Uh, in fact, I, I, I met him once on vacation, bumped into him providentially, and we had a great conversation, and um, he's a good apologist for the Christian faith. Um, so he would uh, he, he has some good, solid material out there. Now, that's not to say I would necessarily agree with every jot and tittle that he has written. <laughs> I don't think there's any two Christians who agree on every single point with each other. But is he solidly evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing, and committed to defending the faith? Absolutely. So uh, I think you would, I'm sure, benefit from his ministry. David from Concord, New Hampshire writes, Do we know the order of the temptations that Christ faced? The accounts seem to differ, and any help would be appreciated. Well, the the temptation of Christ is uh, listed in, in two key passages. They're easy to remember, uh, Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4. And so what is interesting is that the order of the temptations in Luke 4 is slightly different from that of Matthew 4. Uh, The first temptation is the same. Uh, The devil comes and he says, if you are the son of God. And of course, in Matthew's account, where we uh, see that the temptation follows right on the statement that the father makes, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so um, the uh, temptation follows right after the baptism and right after the affirmation of the father that he's pleased with his son, which, by the way, helps me to understand the Uh, purposes of the temptations certainly like Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 indicate it's so that we know we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses one who's been tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin so the temptations though they were very real were to show really not to see if Christ could sin but to show that he could not sin what we often refer to as the impeccability of Christ so they were very real There were real temptations, but because Christ had no sin nature and because his human nature was inseparably combined to his divine nature, they really demonstrated that he could not sin. Think of it this way. If you have a, um, an iron girder and, uh, next to it, you have a, a, a piece of solder, the solder all by itself is easily bendable. Um, but if that solder somehow is infused into the iron girder, and if you let the solder represent his human nature and the iron girder, his divine nature, then there's no way you can bend the solder. And that's really how the temptations were that Christ faced. They were real, but they demonstrated that he was sinless. And so the devil begins by asking him, if you are the son of God, 
Um, and of course, it's not a doubt. It's what you call in the Bible a first class conditional statement. It's assumed to be true. Some of the newer translations say, since you are the son of God. But I prefer if, because um, God put if there for emphasis in the way it's structured in Greek. And of course, a, a Bible teacher maybe asked to explain that to people. But Satan is not questioning whether or not he's God the son. He just heard the witness and testimony of the father at the baptism of Christ, not to mention the nature of the temptation demands that he be the son of God. Who else could be uh, tempted to take a rock and turn it into a loaf of bread? But Christ could because of who he was. And of course, Jesus responds, um, it is written, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Then Luke's account says, and the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain. Oh, let me back it up a verse. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I will give it to whomever you wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And of course, Jesus responded again with scripture. It's written uh, that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Now, that's the second temptation in Luke's account. In Matthew's account, that's the third temptation. And so the second and third temptations are reversed. So your question is, um, which one is correct? Well, They're both correct in the sense that there's no contradictions here. Matthew uses a little word then. It's the little Greek word tate, T-O-T-E, if you transliterate it. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And then, of course, he misquotes scripture. And uh, but in terms of he uses a, a word of time then. And then he introduces the third temptation. Again, the devil said, so we know that Matthew's order is correct because he precisely uses the word then, whereas uh, in Luke's account, he uses the conjunction chi and, and the devil said to him, it's not a, a time word. He's just saying, well, here's another temptation. And then, of course, what's said at the end of the third temptation would have to make it the third temptation because the third temptation, as it's listed in Matthew's account, that is the second temptation in in, uh, Luke's account. And the devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and so forth. All these things are yours if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the words be gone, Satan, are not included in Luke's account. And of course, uh, once he makes that statement, Satan's gone. And so it tells you it has to be the third temptation. So again, it's a good example with the Gospels. Uh, They never contradict one another. They only complement one another. And God, um, uh, in his wisdom, because the Spirit of God inspires each of the human writers, and he is the Spirit of truth, he makes no mistakes He makes no error. Uh, He does it perfectly, but he organizes it differently for for different reasons. And uh, and that's his own preference. Sometimes it's really clear why he did it. Sometimes it's not always so clear, but but, uh, there's no contradiction here. So I appreciate that question. Good one. Uh, Let's go to the next one. All right. A caller just dictated their question. They say that in the Old Testament, Satan was cast out of heaven. But then in the book of Revelation, uh, Satan is in heaven accusing God's people. 
Could you please give the scripture where Satan returned to heaven? Well, um, understand that uh, in the opening verse of the Bible, it's, it's, it's an interesting verse grammatically. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Barashit, in the beginning, bara Elohim, uh, created God, literally the order. If I said, um, uh, uh, they is fat, you'd say, oh, that's poor grammar. But if I said they are fat, that would be good grammar. And so what's kind of interesting here in the opening verse of the Bible, the grammar is not what you would expect because the word God is a plural uh, noun, Elohim, it's plural. And of course, you find really, even in the opening verse of the Bible in kernel form, the doctrine of the Trinity. God will later say, let us make man in our image, not let me make man in my image. And so in the beginning, God, plural, and then he uses a singular verb, created. And then what's interesting, Hashemayim v'et ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. And in Hebrew, there's singular, there's dual, and then there's a form for three or more. And so what he uses here is the dual, the heavens, meaning there's just two heavens at this point. And so initially there's two heavens, but then the Bible speaks of a third heaven later on in the New Testament. So I think what we see happening is that initially Satan has access into the heavens, into the very presence of God. That's clear in the two passages where God describes the fall of Satan. And they're easy to remember. 14 times 2 is 28. So Isaiah 14 is one central passage where you find the five I will statements that could apply to no one else but this one. We call the evil one Satan. And the other is Ezekiel chapter 28, where a section moves from a human king to someone who's supernatural in nature that could not in any way, sense, or form describe the human king. And again, it's a reference to Satan. And so at one time, Satan did have access to the very presence of God. He's cast out of heaven, but he still has access into the second heaven. And, um, and of course, what we see in the revelation is he's ultimately cast down to the earth uh, during the time of the great tribulation. So we go from two heavens to three heavens. Um, and that's just kind of the short answer, but this might be something you'd want to study in more depth by uh, taking the course that we offer angelology, which deals with the doctrine of angels and half of the course deals with holy angels and the other half deals with fallen angels. And we go into great depth uh, spelling this all out. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, I think we've got time for one more question. Liz in Texas would like to know, is it biblical for a church to have a small group ministry that is co-led by a husband and wife in their home? Would it be better to attend an ABF that is led by a male? Well, I suppose what you mean by co-led. Again, what people sometimes do in our day is they make a distinction between what happens in the worship service and what happens in, say, a parachurch ministry or in a Bible study in someone's home. But God makes a very, very clear statement. Uh, He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. 
And of course, he, he's talking about what should happen in the worship service. And then he's going to go on and he's going to describe the office of pastor, which men are to fulfill because the office of pastor is a teaching office. That's primarily what a pastor is supposed to do. He is uh, to teach the word to those who are lost. We call that evangelism. And he is to teach the word to those who are saved. We call that discipleship. And that's how a pastor principally disciples people. It's through the pulpit where he builds into their lives and he opens the word of God and he teaches it. And that's a ministry that is restricted to men. It's not because men and women are not equal. They are, but they have different roles in the church, just like men and women have different roles in the home. Uh, It doesn't mean that the man, because he's called the head of his wife and uh, in first Corinthians 11, in described as the head of his home in Ephesians five and in Colossians that he's any better. They just have different roles. And so what unfortunately some people would do is they would say, well, I can't argue with that. Some do argue with this and they try to say, well, this is just a problem with the church that Timothy uh, pastored and it only applied to that day, like foot washing might to our day. No, um, this is not some cultural thing. This is the uh, goes back to the order of cre- creation and how man actually fell. And that's what Paul builds his argument on. But to say this applies only in the church. And when you get into a Bible study in someone's home, if the wife wants to teach, you know, in a mixed group, if that's what you mean by co-led, then she can do it. Well, that's like just saying that um, in the verse just prior to this, where he says a woman is to adorn herself with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, and not with braided hair or, or in gold or pearls or costly garments. Oh, well, I guess uh, living a, 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 a modest life in terms of your dress and, and being discreet in what you wear only applies in the worship service. But, you know, when you get out into the Bible study in your home or in the community, you can dress like a hooker. No, he, he's not saying that. Um, th- this is God's order of things. And it may sound old-fashioned, but because we've rejected God, God's order of things in and outside of the church, we're paying a huge price. We think we're so wise and so smart and so progressive, and um, we're, we're seeing disasters in the church and in the home today because we've ignored what God has said. So a woman who um, is doing that in her home, she's either living in ignorance or she's living in rebellion. And it's hard for me if she's to believe that if she's even regenerated by the spirit, that she may be living even to some degree in ignorance, because I can't help but think that the spirit of God is convicting her of her sin. But certainly if you open the scriptures up to her and help her to see what God says, and, and I have a couple of hours of teaching just on this. And if someone's interested in studying it further, go to my series on first Timothy and listen to the messages I preached on the latter half of first Timothy two and the first half of first Timothy chapter three. A same would apply in a Sunday school class. You know, sometimes women will say, well, there's no men who will step up. Then those women ought to say, well, if you guys aren't going to step up, I guess we're not going to have a Sunday school class or an adult Bible fellowship because we're not going to violate what God says. And that's sad, you know, when women don't do that. And it's sad when men don't step up. But that would be the right thing to do. Well, we're out of time. The hour has slipped away once again. We didn't get to all of the questions, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday when we come back. 
Uh, these Bible lines are posted at WAGP.net, and you can uh, go back and listen to them if that's of help to you. Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.